0: Hola y bienvenidos a Peruvians of USA, Peruanos de Estados Unidos, un podcast en español, inglés y spanglish donde compartimos las diversas historias del inmigrante peruano. My name is Natalie Sofía y soy una chica peruana que vive en los Estados Unidos por más de 20 años. Welcome to Peruvians of USA, the podcast in Spanish, English, and Spanglish where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. My name is Natalie Sofía, a fellow Peruvian living in the US for more than 20 years. So let's get started. Welcome, Julieta, to Peruvians of USA. I am really happy to have you here today and have you share your Peruvian-American experience with our audience. Please introduce yourself to our audience.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm Julieta. I am a hypnotherapist and coach based out of California, Northern California, and I help women overcome anxiety, learn to navigate difficult emotions, and really deepen their self-love and self-connection. My dad is from Lima, and my mom is a white American, Generations in California.
0: All right. So before we jump into your Peruvian uh, story and and your family's immigrant story, let's talk a little bit about what you do now. You mentioned you're a hypnotherapist, and you uh, coach women. You help them overcome anxiety and navigate emotions healthy. Twenty twenty, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a very tough year.
1: Um, yeah, twenty twenty has been a super intense year, and it's actually my first uh full year in business where I wasn't doing any other work. So I had been working freelance for the I've been freelance for the last uh almost six years, but I was doing other types of work, and um, yeah. So I really started my business right before the pandemic started, and. Um, it's just been insane it's been absolutely insane i've been really lucky and really blessed that i've gotten to work with so many amazing women in the last year um but also it's been a huge like roller coaster of emotions and luckily that's the bulk of my work right is like helping people humbly helping women navigate their emotions in a way that feels really connective and really healthy and um and so yeah it's been it's been a lot uh, but it's been good at the same time. And, and I'm really used to being at home. So it wasn't a huge shift for me.
0: How did you get involved with hypnotherapy and and How did that start for you?
1: So my, uh, my family, my dad, especially is really into meditation and I am as well. Um, and so I started meditating really young. Um, and I had seen a therapist, a hypnotherapist, when I was 18. I looked into it at that time, but it didn't feel right. Um, and then I went through this really horrible breakup when I was like 26, 27. I went to a hypnotherapist, and it was so life changing. I had had such bad like anxiety my whole life, um, really, really severe panic attacks, depression, OCD, and my brain was just like this little bundle of anxiety, essentially, and like overthinking and overwhelm. Um, and then. Uh, through that hypnosis and through the hypnotherapy experience that I had and the ones that I had subsequent to my, my breakup hypnotherapy experience, it really helped me overcome all of that. So I feel really, really amazing now. And it really called to me to always be able to work with people and helping people. I used to work in community health for like almost a decade and mostly working with Latino immigrants and migrant farm workers. And for me, it's always really, really important to be uplifting Latinos and helping, especially immigrants or children of immigrants. And I really focus on that heavily in my work as a hypnotherapist as well.
0: So my exposure to hypnotherapy has been very limited. Um, actually, my best friend, she's a, she's a therapist, and she got certified, I think, in hypnotherapy as well. And she's always uh, been telling me, hey, let's try it out. Because <laughs> there's definitely things I need to work on as well. But can you give us an insight to how does it work for the audience who do not even know like how this process works?
1: Totally. So the way that I approach uh, my work there's a, you'll see in hypnotherapy there's a lot of like spiritual hypnotherapists that's not how i approach work at all i'm very scientific i'm very evidence based um and it's really important to me to combine hypnosis with other tools because i think you just get the most bang for your buck when you're combining subconscious work and con- conscious mind work so what i mean by that is in hypnosis um If you think of your mind kind of split into two parts, a conscious part and a subconscious part, your conscious mind is where we do like our critical thinking, our analytical thinking, our worrying, our judgmental thinking, not negative judgments, but just like you can judge kind of what's happening in the world around you, as well as negative judgments too. And then uh, our subconscious mind is where our memories are stored, where our automatic body processes are stored, where our beliefs and values are stored. Um, And when you and I are talking the way that we're talking now, our conscious minds are really, really engaged. Um, that means that you have a lot of critical thinking that's happening. And if you were struggling with anxiety, for example, if I tell you in this conversation like, oh, you can over you can totally overcome anxiety. your critical thinking factor that's heard your whole life may be that you'll never overcome anxiety. You're always going to feel like this forever will hop in. and it'll be really hard for you to believe or to, trust that you can overcome anxiety. If I say the same thing to you in hypnosis, hypnosis is such a relaxed state of deep focus that your conscious part of your mind um, becomes less active and your subconscious mind becomes more active. We see this on imaging studies. If I say the same thing to you in hypnosis, because your subconscious cannot analyze, cannot critique, cannot judge, it just internalizes and accepts you all of a sudden, like your mind becomes open to that possibility and open to the healing that you want to create. So what it does is it just amplifies any results that you want to have if you're working on um overcoming anxiety and depression it will get you there so much faster than just working in the conscious mind does that make sense
0: yes it does make sense um how would i know if i that's an area that i should explore or think about and how would i go about finding like the proper person to work with
1: for sure so i would say um I I am a big proponent of using hypnosis for any type of personal growth work or healing work because it does just get you where you want to be from point A to point B so much faster than if you were to do it without hypnosis. It really helps support your mind to fully believe that what you want is possible and also to release old pain, old negativity, and kind of like create the confidence, happiness, joy, whatever you want to feel. So I, I recommend it for everything. If we're looking at like what your specific goals are, if you really wanna do, you know, like I mentioned before, there is some people that use uh, hypnosis for spiritual reasons. So like past life regressions and stuff like that. I would look for someone who specializes in that. If you're looking for a more evidence-based approach, I would look for clinical hypnotherapy or evidence-based hypnotherapy. And again, it's, it's kind of like finding a partner. Like you just wanna find, same with a therapist too, if you look for therapy. You want to find the therapist or the hypnotherapist that you feel like aligns with your values or aligns with how you want to work through whatever you're going through. And uh, you just try them on like hats, basically, until you find the one that you really like. So
0: control is a question that comes up with hypnotherapy, right? So I don't define myself as a control freak, but I do fear like, oh, are you going to make me act funny? Uh, (laughs) Can you touch on that?
1: Oh, I'm so glad you asked this. Um, <laughs> because, uh, yeah, so, like, in movies and TV, right, we all, we've all we all seen hypnosis. Um, and it's, like, someone holding a pocket watch and, like, hypnotizing you. Or, like, in Get Out with the tea, when she stirs the tea and he, like, drops into the sunken place or whatever. Um, and we see those hypnosis stage shows where they make you, like, quack like a duck and, like, run around all crazy. Um, so... It's really huge. it's really important for people to know there's nothing that a hypnotherapist can tell you that will make you do something you don't want to do. So while you're in the session, when you're in hypnosis you're aware of what's happening um, you are in complete control we can stop the session at any time and your brain will like override anything that the hypnotherapist tells you that doesn't align with how you want to feel. so um, yeah, so just like when you're in the session, it kind of feels like, I don't know if you've ever had a dream, but you're, like, at the point of waking up. And so you can hear what's happening in the room around you, but you can also experience what's happening in your dream. It's, like, at the same time. Um, that's what hypnosis kind of feels like. So you're aware, and you can stop at any time.
0: That's so interesting. I, I definitely want to try it. Yeah. Um, and you know now like now that i know that my my best friend got certified on hypnotherapy like i'm, I'm sure that she'll take care of me <laughs> yeah uh, and, and and is that the process is the process that you you get sort of you go through a training and you get certified what is that process like
1: yeah and this this comes back to again like as you're searching for a hypnotherapist i really recommend searching with the hypnotherapist with the highest level of training that you're comfortable with so hypnotherapy is not like regulated or governed by the state or by the country in the united states so you can literally go you can just put a shingle on your door and say i'm a hypnotherapist with no training essentially um and so you really want to always ask like what training have you had what history do you have what knowledge do you have um you can go get like a weekend certification if you wanted to um so i specifically have i trained in hypnotherapy for a year um and i'm at like the highest level of what you can do in hypnotherapy and i also spent 15 years of my life because I had so much anxiety because I had so much depression and OCD and all that stuff I literally would research like psychology textbooks um, and read as if I was like studying psychology at university level so um that's kind of my history my experience but there's definitely like you said there's therapists that do hypnotherapy and there's the people that took a weekend course that do hypnotherapy and it's really important to verify (laughs) what feels good to you
0: Yes, for sure. Uh, And and it's good to know that there are different levels of training because I I think sometimes we assume everybody has the same level of training and then we just go with the first person we, we find. So I think that's a great, great advice. So you also coach and help women through their emotions and their anxiety. And as I mentioned earlier, 2020 was a very tough year for many, many of us. And for some of us who have experienced turmoil in our home countries, right? And I know I, I, I sort of shared some thoughts on in Instagram with the audience, with our, follow, with our followers, about just reminiscing about certain things and just some chaotic feelings, feelings of uncertainty that I felt as a child in Peru. For those of us who are we re- experiencing those things, what advice do you have?
1: I think self-care is the most important thing you can do as we're watching, especially like when we're living in these really, when we're living in these really fucked up societies, um, where you know white supremacy is so is so huge, racism is so huge, classism is so huge, xenophobia, transphobia, like all these things that deeply affect us as human beings at our core level, and really take away our self, um, our sense of self acceptance and self love. When we're kind of thrust into these situations, we often forget the most basic self-care. And what I mean by that is, like, make sure you're eating, make sure you're sleeping, make sure you're relaxing, make sure you're having fun, make sure that you're connecting with humans, and make sure you're taking time alone. That stuff goes out the window so fast when we're in a heightened state of stress. And so it's wonderful when we talk about self-care to, like, think about bubble baths and doing all these really, like, soothing, soft, relaxing things. But I think you really need to always remember your basic self-care moments and also surround yourself with people who uplift you and support you and make you feel better make you feel hopeful make you feel good because if you're kind of like a doomsday scrolling on social media and all you see is this like horrific news um without a break that really takes a huge toll on your mental health so that's what i would say is like definitely focus on the most basic self care and also kind of surrounding yourself with so much love and so much kindness and so much support and limiting Uh, you know, staying connected, staying involved, obviously staying informed, but not scrolling all day, not looking at the news all day, like limit it to like morning and evening, you do a check-in to just catch up with what's happened in the world, um, and give yourself a break. Yeah.
0: I think going sort of back to basics of self-care is such a great advice. And, and even though, um, you know, I didn't seek help last year when I was feeling this level of uncertainty. I did, for some, I did, um, made a checklist of things that were pretty basic. Like, did I drink water? Yes. <laughs> did, I, did I go for a walk? Um, you know, things like that. Did I stretch? Just like, and I made myself a checklist because I, when COVID started, I, I think I didn't function probably for a week or two weeks. <laughs> I, was like, I don't know what's yeah. happening. And then, you know, my survival probably just kicked in and was like, all right, we need to go back to basics. Are you hydrating? Are you sleeping? Are you moving around? Are, you know, and, and so I think that's such a great advice because that is what got me out of that funk, I guess, to say it that way. I also wanted to touch a little bit on this. As you mentioned, you got introduced to hypnotherapy after a really bad breakup. Many of us have gone through... Probably have pretty bad breakups and, and can relate. Um, so I'm just going to touch on this. Like, what do you advise to someone who finds themselves in that position now?
1: I think having the tools to manage your emotions and navigate your emotions is the biggest thing for human beings, like, period. Because imagine all the uncomfortable emotions that we don't like having, like frustration, anger, rejection, sadness, grief, the loss of a, a loved one, a breakup, um, and not knowing what to do with those things, right? Like you're just sitting with them and we do all these things as humans to try to feel good. We like smoke weed or we drink or we scroll on social media or we go have sex with someone or um, we, we just do things to try to distract ourselves from the feelings that we're having. Um, And when you're in that period, you actually need to lean in so much harder than you probably already are. Um, And I'm saying like you as the collective you, right? Lean into your emotions and have the tools necessary to navigate those emotions healthily. I'm really a huge um, supporter of like treating yourself the way you would treat a small child. If a small child walked up to you and said, I feel so sad right now. I feel horrible. I have this feeling in my chest and my gut, how would you soothe that child? How would you comfort them? How would you speak to them? What would you do for them to help support them through their emotions? Hopefully it would be something super kind and super nice and not just dismiss the child. That's the way we should be treating ourselves is like curl up in a ball, hug yourself, allow yourself to feel Take breaks if you need to, but come back to your feelings because that's what actually helps you move through them so much faster.
0: Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I would hope that you know we would also be so kind and understanding to a child. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm pausing a little bit. I'm laughing a little bit because like George Lopez like skit of like why are you crying comes to mind. Ah, like, uh, yes. <laughs> like his yes. mom. His mom. Asking him, why are you crying? I feel like a lot of Latina moms <laughs> do that. And they're like, Why are you crying? There's no reason to cry. And let me give you a reason to cry about. And so, yeah. you know, it's 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 being a parent to yourself, maybe not the same way your parents were parent to you, but it's yeah.
1: reparenting yourself <laughs> for sure. Yeah. That's just- um, and, and paying attention to that dynamic. If you did have that dynamic growing up in your household where your parents maybe were emotionally neglectful or dismissed you a lot. Um, It's really important to repair yourself and start treating yourself with the kindness you deserved as a kid um, and also help break that cycle for any future generations, whether you have kids or like your siblings have kids or whatever. Yes, that's true.
0: So let's pivot a little bit to your Peruvian heritage, which comes from your father. So tell us a little bit about him and his side of the family and and how and why did they decide to come here to the U.S.?
1: Yeah, so my dad is um, from Lima, like I mentioned earlier, and he kind of grew up uh, split between Barranco, Callao, um, and Pueblo Libre as well in Lima. They all came over. My whole family I was really blessed that all my aunts and uncles came over. My abuelitos came over um, because my my oldest uncle, the oldest one in the family, got like a grant or he got sponsored in some way to come learn English. Um, and he stayed with this like host family. And I think he was in his uh, early 30s at that time. And he loved it so much. He, he came to the Bay Area, um, and he loved it so much. And uh, my dad came and visited him and had, like, a little holiday. And they they all just decided to come over. So, like, one by one, they pulled each other over through some immigration process that I'm completely ignorant of. Um, <laughs> they pulled each other over. My abuelitos came over. And my dad came here when he was in his I think his mid thirties. So that's how we all got here. Um, and that also means that I, I literally have no family left in Peru at all. So all I have is family friends because even my dad's like cousins and stuff, they came to New Jersey, they came to Florida, they came to New York. Um, so when I go to Peru, I'm just sitting by myself <laughs> and I hang out with uh, the, our family friends who are amazing. I consider them our family as well. But um, but that's, that's how we came over. And it was really just for better economic opportunity I think um there was some stuff happening politically in the 70s when my dad came over that uh I think they all kind of wanted to get away from as well and and again I'm not I'm not super knowledgeable on that at all because they came over and they were just like oh we're just going to start over we're just going to be together and that was really their core reasoning was like we have to stay together so even the aunt like I have an aunt that did not want to come here at all and she came here too she wanted to stay with her family um and, yeah, that's how they got here.
0: I think that's amazing that they all could come in and, you know, come together. Because one of the things that is so difficult about coming to the U.S. is that loneliness you feel and being away from I'm your sure. family. So that's such a blessing that they were able to all come. But it's also so funny that now there's no family, no relatives back in Peru for you. Um, yeah. What does he share with you about the earlier years here, sort of trying to you know, I can't pronounce that word. (laughs) Familiarizarse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the culture
1: here. It was a really hard time for him. He's talked to me a lot about how difficult it was to learn English. And uh, my dad was also someone who, my dad's the only one in my family who's graduated uh, university. And... He worked for like six years to get into university because you know of the testing that they have to get in um he worked for six years just retaking the test over and over and over to get in and at that time he had like his own business and he's always been a uh, uh, he has hustle mentality right which i think a lot of immigrants do um but he had that improve as well and i think that comes back to my Olito. my Olito grew up in ica um and he was he came from extreme poverty so he was like a child that started working at the age of five or four um, and just really did all these like hustle things to kind of like uplift his family and so I think all my uncles definitely inherited that and my dad certainly as well and it was really hard for him he came and I think his first job was like working as a janitor in a bank and yeah just just the difficulty of like leaving everything you've known behind all your food all your like customs your way of being your cultural values and being thrust into this like American society or United States society uh, was really, really difficult. And yeah, we've had a lot of conversations about that for sure.
0: How did he meet your mom?
1: They were both working in the welfare office uh, in somewhere in the East Bay, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and they met each other. I think they like saw each other for several months and then they met and got together, which is really interesting. So my mom, an interesting thing about my mom is she uh, is fluent in Spanish. She grew up in Berkeley, so, even though she's like a white American, she's of Armenian descent, um, Armenian and like British descent, and. She grew up speaking Spanish as well, just learning through school. So we always have spoken, even though my parents are divorced, we've always spoken Spanish in both households.
0: So your mom is from Armenian-British descent or and also, you know, a white woman here in the U.S. Your dad, you mentioned in my notes <laughs> that he's mm-hmm. mixed Peruvian, has some Italian, some indigenous, Afro-Peruvian as well. That's quite a mix that you are. <laughs> how, yeah. how... Has that how? Tell me about your identity and in the process of defining who you are, and, and how do you define yourself?
1: My identity has been extremely difficult to navigate. Uh, it's been very complicated. I grew up in the East Bay, uh, in a town that was extremely racially diverse and like equally diverse. So. I think it was like 26% white people, 24% black people, 24% Asian, 24% Latino, um, and whatever the remaining factor is, if there is, it was indigenous uh, Californian. So I was really, really blessed to be surrounded by other kids of immigrants, but I didn't see a lot of Peruvians or know a lot of Peruvians, and I was really kind of um, surrounded by Latinos, but I didn't look like any of them. I really take after my mom. So my dad is like, when I look at him, I'm like, oh, you're so stereotypical uh, Peruvian. And um, my mom is obviously like white. She was blonde when she was young. She has green eyes. um, And I really take after her. And so I was like thrust into these situations where I spoke the language. I shared maybe some cultural aspects with people, even if they weren't Peruvian. But uh, I didn't ever feel accepted. I went through a roller coaster, essentially, of like trying to navigate my identity that lasted up until my early 20s, where I really struggled. I hated myself, I hated how I looked. Um, I felt so just like not accepted anywhere because I didn't fit in with like American kids and I didn't fit in with Latino kids and even like Peruvian families, none of them looked like mine. And um, or looked like me. And so it was very complicated. And also there's always the the discussion in the U.S. of like what your race is. We didn't talk about that a lot in my family growing up. We talked about race um, in my mom's side of the family because they're all very politically active, um, like left wing people. So we talked about race a lot and struggles with race in the U.S. and white supremacy and things like that but we didn't talk about what my race was and we didn't talk about what my sister's race was and what my brother's race was. So I didn't have answers for people when they asked me, like, why do you look like that? Or um, kids would say things to me. And when I say kids, I also mean adults <laughs> would say things to me. Like, they would be like, what are you? And I would say, oh, I'm Peruvian. And they would say, you're a what? You're a woodian or, or they'll say, no, you're not. Prove it. Like, prove that you're Peruvian. Say something in Spanish then, blah, blah, blah. And it put me in this, like, dynamic with people where I was always afraid of speaking up of being myself of like being connected to my culture and I also simultaneously felt like I was receiving mixed messages because at home my dad was like never forget you're Peruvian you're so Peruvian never forget that you're indigenous you're so indigenous this is your history too taught me like all all of the Peruvian history taught me about like colonization all these things that happened in Peru um like, would literally give me history lessons on long drives of, <laughs> like, At the blah, 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 all this stuff, right? And um, and then I would go out into this, like, American school or American world, and they would be like, you're not this, you're not that, you don't look like this, prove this to me, um, or, like, you don't belong here. And um, it was very confusing. It was super confusing.
0: What's the story behind your name? And also, how did, how did your name contribute it to that whole identity of, like, I don't want to call it crisis, but I guess in a way it is crisis because it you're, was crisis. <laughs> yeah. you're trying to figure out, all right, where I am. My dad's telling me, be Peruvian, you're indigenous, you're all this mix. And then, you know, the outside world is telling me like, no, you're not. This is what you look like and et cetera. Right. So, but how did your name contribute to, to that crisis?
1: Yeah. I mean, I have an Italian first name. Um, I think Anchante. I don't know where Anchante originates, my last name, uh, but I know that all the Anchantes I've ever seen in the internet anywhere they all stem from Ica, right? Like there's a hell Anchantes in Ica, which is where my abuelito is from. Um, but my first name is Italian. My dad's great grandfather emigrated to Arequipa from um, Sardinia, Italy, and that's to my knowledge that's the only white. Uh, race that we have in our family. I don't think we have any Spanish or, like, Portuguese ancestry at all, um, based on family history and also based on, like, this DNA test that one of my family members took. Because they had, like, a very recent... um immigrant to peru in that italian like great-grandfather um my dad's always really liked like italian stuff and uh he named me this italian name which i love now i'm, I'm obsessed with my name now i'm so happy with it now but growing up it was really hard because uh, on the east coast i think it's a little bit different there's a lot more italian names but on the west coast uh my name was super weird it was super weird and People couldn't say it. People would constantly ask me, like, oh, can I call you something else? Do you have a nickname? And it's so, I always felt so uncomfortable and, like, so disrespected. But I was a little kid, so I couldn't put a name to that, right? You can't put a name to that emotion. By first grade, so I've been in preschool, I've been in kindergarten, and I've been in first grade dealing with this type of conversation. Um, So at six years old or five years old, I came home to my mom and I said, I need to change my name to Julie. Julie. And I kept my spelling G I U um, L I, but people would call me Julie, and people called me Julie until I was 18. And when I turned 18, I was like getting out of like my first serious relationship and realizing how much I had lost in my lifetime. Kind of dealing with the constant conversations around my race and ethnicity and my name um and really I had gone through periods of time where I really tried to push myself away from Peruvianness just so that I could fit in um and so that I wouldn't have to have those conversations um and when I turned 18 I was like wait a minute like this does not feel good like I'm not being myself and I started introducing myself it was like my first step towards reclaiming myself I started introducing myself as Julieta again people even now that I knew in like high school or whatever will try to call me Julie and I'll correct them and they'll be like "Uh, I don't I can't say that like there's no way for me to say that and I'm like yeah you can (laughs) you could totally say it you could try it's just still a constant struggle but I feel so much more secure in it now for sure
0: How did your siblings deal with, the race identity? Did you, did the three, I think you mentioned three, there's three of you, did the three of you discuss it? Did you, did did one find it easier? Do the three of you all look alike? Sometimes I know that you can have siblings who look more like the dad and the other ones look like the mom. And so, um,
1: yeah, we've all dealt with it differently. I think, I think I, um, I think I had the most, what I would call the most, like, trauma from it out of the three of us. Um, and I don't know if it's because I'm the youngest or if just, I'm just more sensitive or something, but um, I think I had the most trauma from, like, all that experience. But we all went through the same thing, I would say. Um, I, my brother... He's actually my half-brother. So his dad is from Guatemala. And his dad is actually, like, less indigenous than my dad. But my brother is very... He came out dark with, like, brown skin, dark curly hair. Black curly hair, really. Um, And so he looks different than me and my sister, who have the same two parents. And I know that him... He dealt with, obviously, racism that I never had to deal with. And he dealt with conversations that I never had to deal with with like police officers and things like that so I was always very aware of that happening and like it definitely contributed to the confusion of how I felt but also is like just a huge signifier of course of like the immense privilege I have because I was born with like white skin or I do look more ambiguous ethnically um Or, or some people think I look just white. So I was always aware that I had a layer of protection and that I could hide where my brother could never hide. We had a lot of conversations around that for sure growing up, but we also all dealt with it differently. Like my brother, I've never heard him say I'm Latino ever in my life. Um, and he, I think, really connects with, like, all sides of us. Like, he connects with the Armenian side. He connects with the Guatemalan side. And I do as well. But I heavily, I think because my dad was so, like, you're Peruvian, you're Peruvian. Um, I heavily, heavily connect with my Peruvian side above all else. So... It's, it's a really interesting dynamic. And my sister, I think, um, went through a period as well where she also kind of pushed away Peruvian stuff because she looks even less Peruvian, stereotypically Peruvian than I do.
0: Yeah. When you uh, were going through the period of pushing away your Peruvianness, was that something your dad noticed? Did you, was he like, what, you know, what's happening or... Was that not discussed
1: at all? I don't think it was ever discussed. And I don't know if my dad noticed, but I was, like, extreme to the point of, like, I would put on a fake accent in Spanish. Like, instead of a la no normal, I would say, like, puedo ir al cine. Like, that to exaggerate... Because I was so uncomfortable with people hearing me speak Spanish. And I'd also had incidents with my dad growing up where people, you know, told us like, oh, speak English or like go back to your country or, um, or gave us really dirty looks uh growing up. So I was just hyper aware. I was definitely, definitely subconsciously trying to assimilate to like white American culture for sure. And I don't think my dad ever noticed that, but I think my dad would say that, like, at that period in my life, I was very, very rebellious, and I rebelled against my family, my culture, um, as well as just, like, all these, like, very Peruvian cultural ideals. And my dad's very traditional, so, like, I dyed my hair when I was 12. He was so upset uh, that I dyed my hair. And... I really I liked dating like skater boys with like piercings. He was so upset that I was dating guys with piercings or tattoos, um, and so I think that's how he would classify the pyramid life. But I don't think we ever talked about that. That's
0: so interesting. Yeah, like tattoos and piercings. I feel like Peruvian parents would be like, "You're dating somebody who's on the path to jail or something." Yes,
1: a hundred percent. Yes. that's That's exactly what it was
0: (laughs) yeah um i think it's just because i the way they grew up in peru too um so tell us about um when you went to peru what were your, your first impressions that you remember
1: so i had like my because my dad had talked to me about peru so much and was always like every time i was with him was always like you're peruvian don't forget you're peruvian this is your stuff too wear these clothes listen to this music eat this food like everything peruvian um when I went to Peru for the first time, I was 14 and I had been wanting to go my entire life at that point. I was like, I gotta go. Like there's no I have to be in Peru, of course, because it's my it's my country too. And I got there and it was like returning home after being gone for so long. Like all the smells were super familiar to me. Um and it was super impactful because it was the first time in my life that I had seen in entire, like, I was surrounded by people who looked just like my family. And it was like, I'm going to, I'm going to cry. <laughs> it was like, uh it was super impactful and it created such a sense of like belonging to me. And at the same time, it was the first time that I became aware, like, oh, I am so American because I did not grow up. My clothes were different. Um, I had dyed red hair at that time when I went to Peru for the first time. I just felt very different at the same time. And up until then, I had really identified as Peruvian, which I think is normal in the United States. We identify as like where our parents came from. Instead of saying Mexican-American, we'll say we're Mexican, et cetera. Um, And it was the first time that I was like, oh, you are not full Peruvian. And... It's okay to call yourself Peruvian-American because unfortunately <laughs> you have some American traits uh, and that was a huge eye-opening experience for me as well.
0: Yeah, I think um, even even those of us who came here as kids and go back, unless we have been surrounded by a lot of Peruvian culture, um, not only in our home, but outside of our home, like I'm thinking like those that perhaps lived in Patterson, New Jersey or Miami who have so many Peruvians around them uh yeah you go back and your accent's different you your mannerisms are different um and so i can only imagine like you know you go back and you're like yes i am peruvian and then you look around and you're like i do feel a sense of belonging because everybody looks like my family here but at the same time i'm realizing oh yeah i am also american right so it's really interesting so what was that trip like when you were 14 what did you guys do in and peru
1: we had two weeks, and I think my dad was like, I'm going to show you as many things as possible in those two weeks. He's like, you have to see everything. And my dad also, too, had been waiting our whole lives to take us to Peru, right? So uh, it was very exciting for him. And we went we went to Lima. We saw, um, we didn't do that much in Lima, actually. We went to um, Cusco, we went to Machu Picchu, we went to Arequipa. Um, and we just kind of like traveled between those three places for the full two weeks. And then we left. It was like, we're in, we're out. But I saw so much. I went to Cañón Colca. I saw the condors. Like, yeah, it really left me with like the desire to stay longer and especially to stay longer in Lima because that's where my dad had grown up. So the next time I went to Peru, I made sure to only stay in Lima. I didn't go anywhere else. And I just explored Lima. But we did all, we did so many things. So you've been to Peru
0: three times. Um, the first time was when you were 14 and then you went back and explored Lima.
1: What was the third time? The third time was in 2019. I went for a month um, and I went to, I wanted to, again, I wanted to stay in Lima because I have this like itch, this desire to go live in Peru for a period of time. And this was me kind of being like, well, I'll go for a month and I'll see how I feel. And I went, I just stayed in Barranco. I made friends. I just just completely immersed myself in Barranco, which is uh, one of the places where my dad grew up and it felt very homey. It felt very nice. Um, and that was, that was just in 2019. Yeah.
0: Besides feeling, um, you know, that you are American, um, you know, while you're in Peru, what other insights did you have about being there? Did you ever feel like what, what aspects of yourself did you learn in that trip? Because I think, you know, I have also contemplated, oh, I wanna go back and like live there for a few months and, and maybe reconnect. And I did get a chance to, to do that uh, several years ago for work, actually. I, I went to Peru to work there for a couple months, but I, I'm, I'm getting that itch again where I want to go back and, and now I'm married and I want to take my husband there. He is not Peruvian and so we're entertaining the idea. Uh, COVID happened so that <laughs> kind of got canceled, but yeah, tell us about that.
1: Yeah, the thing about, like, my entire experience growing up Peruvian-American is, like, I never feel rejected by Peruvians. Peruvians never question me when I'm in their space at all. I never get questioned. Peru people think I'm a local Peruvian when I'm there. They just think that I'm rich <laughs> because, you know, we all know how I look, <laughs> um, but they think I'm rich uh obviously due to like the classism issues. Uh, and they, they never, ever, ever think that I am from the United States. So that being there and experiencing that and like feeling that sense of belonging and acceptance is so huge for me because I think a part of me is always afraid Even, like, getting on this call today, I was, like, the fear of rejection was, like, creeping in, and I was, like, oh, what if, what if I, my experience is not good enough? I think that's what it comes down to is, like, I'm not good enough because I fit into, like, these two different worlds almost seamlessly, and I don't fit fully into either one, right? And, uh... So that's been hugely impactful. And yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say, except for like, it's always very welcoming when I go home. When, when I say when I go home, when I go to Peru, um, it feels like my second home. And I just love being there.
0: I, I love that you called it home and that just rolled out of your tongue, right? Like that's, uh, it's obvious uh, how much at home you feel that uh, in Peru and, and how much you love it and identify with, with being Peruvian. Um, I know you also like to slow travel and that you have lived in other countries. Um, What countries have you lived in and what has your experience either been there as an american or as a latina and, and i know sometimes as latinos with each other we're just so harsh <laughs> um mm-hmm. in, in defining who fits into this category who doesn't and um and yeah just or even keeping stereotypes with each other right like i, I don't know who said it there's even a hierarchy that latino thinks that exists but yeah tell us about these three countries and um yeah what has your experience been there
1: so i've lived in london um and i've lived in barcelona as well as the united states and i've also lived on the east coast i lived in philadelphia the united states for a little while and everywhere i go i have a different experience and it's all very much rooted and comes back to like my identity how i present um, et cetera, et cetera. So in London, and England, they everyone was just like, oh, you're American, you're American, and I was like, cool, yeah, but I'm Peruvian American. Like, don't get it twisted. I'm Peruvian American. In Spain, people always thought that I was from Mexico. They thought I was from Argentina. Um, obviously, they have in Spain an image of like what Peruvians look like, and it is not me. It is, you know, um, someone who looks more indigenous and who has an alpaca, and uh, you know. Tienes su chuyo puesto. And like, he's a stereotypical Peruvian. So uh, people think I'm Argentinian because I'm hella white. Or, or they think I'm Mexican. Both of those experiences were amazing. Especially in Barcelona. Because there's so many Peruvians in Barcelona. and Spain, in general, there's a lot of Peruvians. And so it was like so easy to find aji amarillo. I always look every time I move. I'm like where can I buy a amarillo Where can I buy a Rocoto? Where can I buy, like, all these very specific... El de Lucuma, where you at? I'm trying to find you. So, uh, in London, it was very difficult. Um, and in Spain, it was very easy. It was insanely easy. And that was really amazing. That was really wonderful. And then, in Philadelphia, it was, like, the biggest culture shock of my life, because there's almost no Peruvians there. And it's very segregated in Philly. And I had never experienced such, like, extreme segregation before in my life. So, that was really interesting. Um, but I just find like everywhere I go, someone wants to ask me, like, what are you, where, like, where are you from? What are you? And like on the West coast, when I was growing up, people would always ask me if I was half Chinese and on the East coast, they asked me if I'm Spanish or if I'm Jewish. I got asked a couple of times, which is really interesting. And then in London, it's like, Oh, you're just American in Spain. It's like, you're this South American thing, whatever, ambiguous. And, uh, it's it's been wonderful but it's also really interesting how that question like follows me all around the world
0: yeah I, I can only imagine um, your experience and in, in, in Barcelona um, my store, my experience in Barcelona I went there I went to Spain not Barcelona I went to Madrid um, after I graduated from undergrad and I think we were I went with a friend and we went to a hostel we were going to stay in a hostel and the person who greeted us asked us we look I guess stereotypically Peruvian my friend also looks very stereotypically Peruvian and the person who greeted us at the hostel said oh are you guys looking for jobs (laughs) did you come here looking for jobs oh my god (laughs) and we were both like we're on vacation (laughs)
1: Oh, my God. So
0: that was my story with Spain. But so I understand why they would be like, wait, you must be Argentina," (laughs) because, you you know, so I understand that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that says so much about, um, I I don't want to take it back too far to like colonization, but really what it is, is like that whole system of like whiteness, right, was maybe bred or started uh, or perfected through colonization and it really goes to show like how much that infiltrates every single place around the world i mean especially we're talking about spain which is like the og colonizers of the modern <laughs> times right it's so interesting because I've never had that experience and I see people having that experience all the time because my family is is brown right they look they look a lot different than me and and all my dad's siblings they're all different colors as well they don't all have like one specific look but you could tell they're all related but I see how people treat them and then when I'm there how people treat me and I've seen it my whole life and so it's always made me like super hyper aware of like making sure to like Usher them forward and being like, no, you don't have to. Like, doctors and nurses, when my Olita was dying, um, I walked into the room one time and uh, my Olita was there, my tia was there, and they had been talking to my tia the whole day. Like, I had just gotten there. As soon as I walked in, they turned and they started talking to me instead. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, I don't have any knowledge on anything that's happened. Talk to her. And I think it comes down to, like, obviously how she looked and also that her English isn't perfect. And I walked in with, like, this really good English, obviously. But it's always me being, like, hyper aware of that and me trying to, like, combat that in any place that I can. Um, because I just have seen it my entire life
0: did you experience so you mentioned that sort of like uh, from an external society like our culture prefers um, or elevates whiteness more right Um, and, and you gave examples of how that has happened in your life but I am curious like if within your family you also felt any sense of preferential treatment and the reason I asked this is because um so in Peru there's colorism like there is in so many places and um I I remember being like a five-year-old or four-year-old and I had girl cousins and I was the darkest complexion of all my cousins and I saw the preferential treatment of the ones that were fair skin light brown hair and I think I shared this in another podcast and I had to sort of heal myself um you know uh, when I became an adult about this but I I have memories of putting you know talco like the powder on my face and at that moment I'm like a four-year-old or five-year-old so I don't really know what I'm doing but as I kind of had memories of it I was like wow like I'm here being a four or five-year-old understanding kind of understanding what's happening and this is my response to it right and so so i I had to do my own healing around that and and i wonder if i know that it could feel not looking like the rest of your family feels very isolating but i do wonder if you also experience that preferential treatment within your family
1: for sure and that's really i think that's really important to talk about because in my family i don't remember that happening but again i'm not the one with brown skin Right? So, like, I don't know what my cousins would have said. or And also, my cousins, my dad had us very, like, later in life. My dad's, uh, like, in his 70s now, and I'm in my 30s. We were the youngest ones, me my sister and I. We were the blondest ones, and we were the whitest ones. So... All my cousins at that point were teenagers. And like when we would come over to the house, they would obviously like fawn over us and be like, oh, me, me, da, 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 you know, all that stuff. But I don't remember it being around skin color, hair color. I do remember a lot of uh, fat phobia happening in my family and a lot of uh, preference towards thin people in my family or the thin kids in my family. It's really hard for me to say like what my browner cousins may have experienced because I wasn't there when they were little. Um, And I was so young. By the time I became a teenager, they were like full grown adults with kids. But I didn't see it.
0: Yeah, and thank you for that, honesty. I know it's a it's a tough question and and you know, just you were very transparent about like, hey, I wonder what my other cousins would have said, right? I, I do appreciate that. You mentioned fat phobia, so I do want to touch on that a little bit because one of the when my husband met my parents and he sees us interact and the way we Talk to each other sometimes. We'll say things like "gordito," "gordita," and he, and you know he'll be like, "You're calling them like little fat one," and <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> to
1: him, that's not cute, right? That's not endearing. <laughs> so, your your husband is American. Yes. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah.
0: So, uh, <laughs> or we'll say like, and, and so. So there is some sort of, uh, you know, that like you can't be too skinny, but you can, you know, it's there's you can make people happy. Like I, I, recently called my grandma a few weeks ago, and she saw me, and she's like, "Oh my god, you lost a lot, you lost weight," and she's like, "You're too skinny, you should eat." And I was like, mm, "A couple of months ago, you told me the opposite, so it's like never a happy medium." But yeah, can you touch on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, for my so like my sister, growing up. My sister, oh, you know what? No, I don't know if it's connected. But my sister is, um, has always been thin and like beautiful. She's wonderful. She's amazing. I have always been chunky since the day I was born. I've been very chunky. And it's really cute when you're a toddler. It's not as cute when you go to school or you, get, you start becoming older, right? So, like, people, when I would go to, like, my aunt and uncle's house, they would be like, oh, Gracielita, me, and they would be like, you're so thin, you're so small, you're so cute. And then would be like, hola, Julieta, como estas? Period. Yes. Freaking harsh. <laughs> I'm not beautiful. It it really it was really hard. Um, And I noticed that so much. I had to tell my dad, actually that he can no longer talk to me about health and weight. I had to set a boundary because I also have an autoimmune disease and my dad, he loves me so much, right? So he's always like, oh, you should try try this remedio and try this and like do all these like natural remedies. And, um, and I'm like, look, dad, I'm exhausted of, of this conversation. I can't have it anymore because he's always asked me things like, well, this other person has your disease. Like, why are they thin and you're overweight? And I'm like, bro, I don't know. I, I don't know, man. Yeah, I mean, that that has been really hard as well. And I think that a lot of that also helped me want to distance myself from my Peruvianess when I was growing up. Because I would go over to my family's houses and those were the conversations being had. And so I felt every time I was there, it lowered my self-esteem. I still see that. Like, sometimes I'll go on a date with someone who's Peruvian from Lima and that's like my dream because I would love to have like little babies like hinchas de la selección with their little jerseys and um and just also have my partner like kind of understand where I'm coming from and so, so I'll be super pumped for my date with this like Peruvian man and then we get there and him and his friends they're all talking like that like oh qué necesito of de peso you're hella not to me but like to each other <laughs> um if it was to me I would leave immediately and and it it is uncomfortable it's super uncomfortable especially because I think that's like my americanness coming out And me being like, oh, because in the United States, we do not do that. We do not talk about weight. You can never talk about someone's weight. People do it anyway to be mean. We're not supposed to do that. And fatness is seen as such a negative thing. And I know it is as well in Latin America. We almost turned it into a joke in Latin America, I think. Or like a term of endearment, like you were saying. And that's always been like a struggle of mine, especially when I date men from South America. I'm just like, you cannot. Don't make sexist jokes to me. I don't think they're funny. Don't make fact-phobic jokes to me. I don't think they're funny. Um, and yeah.
0: You mentioned that about um, how perhaps it's more normal to comment on people's appearances. I had a family member where I was sharing some photos, you know, about like, you know, I went on a trip or, or something. Oh, I think it might have been through Facebook. You know, I'm posting photos. I went on a trip and and this particular family member in Peru would say things like, "Estás más delgada, estás más gorda, o te ves bien," and 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 then even through like uh, WhatsApp messages, right? Like it was there was always a comment about my body, and and I had to tell him like, "Look, whether I'm gain weight or I lost weight or I look better, I don't." care to know what your perception of it it is, right? Like keep it to yourself. I don't need to know it. I don't want a comment on my body. You know, I'm not, this is not why I'm sending you or texting you or I'm sending you a message. And so, and and it was kind of like, I had to put my foot down, but maybe to to reiterate what you said, maybe that is my American side coming out, being like, stop talking about my body.
1: (laughs) Yeah, maybe it's not too. I mean, I'm sure people feel that way improve too, but I think it's so, it's so normalized, right? To like have those, that, that perspective thrust upon you of like, oh, what are you eating? And same thing you were saying earlier as well. Like I was always the chunky one. They would always comment on my weight or pointedly not comment on my beauty or my cuteness. And um, at the same time, my dad would be like, you have to eat, you have to eat at the house. You can't turn any food away. And we could have just ate lunch but hes you have to or it's rude, right? And so, like, I remember growing up, my dad would be like, just tell them, if you don't want to eat, just tell them you're on a diet. And it was the only way that I could get, like, my aunts to not try, or my abuelita as well, to, like, not try to force feed me food <laughs> or, like, be okay with me not eating the dinner. It's like, oh, it's good. Estoy a dieta, blah, blah, blah. And they'd be like, oh, okay, sí. Nah. <laughs> and it was, like, total understanding. Yeah, it's messed up, I think. I think it's messed up. <laughs> I do
0: wonder how many Peruvians experience um, some sort of, well, what their relationship with food is, because that's also some of the conversations I have with my husband. Because, like, I feel so bad throwing away food. Like, oh my God, I- yes. I- I- if we look at the fridge and he sees something that's, you know, kind of going bad, he'll be like, oh, like an avocado, right? Or whatever. He'll be like, all right, trash. And then I'll be like, wait, the other half is still good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> that's
0: facts <laughs> And so, or like, ha- yeah, half a package will be like I would throw half the package away or something, you know. And and um and then also I feel bad leaving food on on my plate, right? And and similar to you, my mom is the one that's like, "Quieres más? Quieres más?" And and like you will have a mountain of rice in front yes. of you <laughs> for dinner, and so. Uh, that's something I had to work through, actually, just being able to say, like, un poquito, like, no quiero mucho, yeah. or like, un poco de arroz, you know, and uh, and so I, I do think that maybe it comes from not having enough in Peru, so then our parents want to give us a lot, but then somehow they think that, okay, I'm going to feed you everything, but you can't gain any weight. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I do wonder. Never win. <laughs> you can't win. And I do wonder what the relationship of other Peruvians are with with food and nutrition. You know, so.
1: Yeah, I think that would be a really interesting conversation to hear, like other people's perspective for sure. Yeah.
0: All right. So let's pivot into the rapid fire questions. Um, okay. So, what is your favorite Peruvian dish? Uh, Speaking of food.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, how much time do we have? Um, no. I, I really love... I think something that I go back to a lot is papa la buoncaina. Like, I could eat that all day. And I'm so specific on how I want it done. Like, I, I have to make it myself for me to be like, yes, this is the best papa la I've ever had. But I also love... I love, like, pan chicharrón with the camote and the, like, ají. Oh, my God. I could eat that every day of my life. Um, I, I love most things, I would say. But I think those... And, and maybe like pollo saltado, which is like super, everyone loves that. But I really, I really like all those things. Yeah.
0: So, what is your specifically have you said papa la Boncaína, Like, what is your special like <laughs> recipe about papa la uh,
1: So, I make a vegan version. And I spent, when I tell you, I spent days trying to figure out how to make it vegan and how to make it still feel like authentic and taste good and I I did it. I figured it out and it's so good. And now when I have like, I'll, I'll have the ve- I'm not vegan, but I'll have the vegan version but I'll also have like the normal version and both are amazing. Um, but I like my papalangana to be spicy and I don't see it be very spicy. Maybe also my palate is messed up and I need like the highest level of spice but I don't find it being very spicy. I also don't like it when it feels like whipped. I don't know if you've ever had that where like the sauce feels whipped. Um, but yeah, it's just like minor things where I'm like, no, I want it to be just like this.
0: <laughs> so it's, just, it's not only it's an, it's not just flavor, but it's also like the texture.
1: Yeah, 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 for sure.
0: Yeah. All right. So, what about um, between chicha morada and moliente, which one do you prefer?
1: Chicha morada all day, every day. <laughs> and if you can mix chicha morada with maracuya, yeah, yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: it's amazing. Um, what about or Pisco Sour? I hate Pisco Sours. Don't come for me, Peruvians. I hate pisco <laughs> Don't <sours>. add her. <laughs> um, I had, last time I was I think they're called Chilcanos or something like that. Is that what it's called? I had that. That was really good. I would drink that. On so regular. is it the
0: egg that you don't like from the pisco sour? it's the egg yeah yeah that's what i figured once you mentioned also the vegan of the yeah.
1: <laughs> i just don't like the texture of the egg i'll mm-hmm. drink it though but i don't love it okay what
0: about wine no festejo
1: festejo festejo yeah. do you like to dance it too i cannot dance to festejo but i love to listen to it <laughs> <Right>.
0: <laughs> um what about your favorite place in peru
1: I, I really love being near the ocean um, in California as well, but it feels different in Peru than it does in California. Um, and specifically, I love Barranco so much. Uh, and I know it's gotten it's gotten very touristy in the last few years, but I, I go and, like, walk through the streets, and I just imagine, like, my abuelita there with her, like, six kids, just, like, walking with her and... Um, It's very, I just love being there. I love Barranco. I would go there every time if I go to Peru.
0: Barranco's nice. Yeah, Barranco's nice. The the, the architecture, the
1: art strange. I really love that, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a really nice uh, neighborhood in Lima. Um, What about your favorite um, Peruvian artist? It could be like an author, it could be a singer, a dancer, uh, even a, let's call it, even a sports athlete if you have one.
1: Oh my God. Um, I think, like, much of the, man, I don't want to generalize like that. I love Paolo Guerrero, and I know that's so generic, um, but I love him. I would die for him. I wish he was my husband. Um, <laughs> no, but I also, like, I love, I love music. I really love listening to music, so I love, like, Evayon. Um, I love, I love listening to anything my dad may have listened to when he was, like, my age or younger. Um, so, like, Lucha Reyes. Uh, I always try to watch like Peruvian movies as well, but no one's coming to mind. But I'm I'm always trying to stay in with the arts for sure.
0: Um, I'm really glad you brought up Paolo Guerrero because I'm curious about your experience. Uh, and I'm kind of going off course a little bit here. <laughs> um, I'm curious about your experience when Peru went to the World Cup and like leading up to it. And what was that for you? Like, what was that like for you? Uh, I
1: cried. I literally cried and i went i was living in philadelphia at the time i'm i'm not a huge soccer fan if it's just soccer i'm a huge peruvian like la selección fan um and i also i enjoy watching like barcelona play and stuff but who doesn't um i cried i was at this bar uh in philly for the first game and they were singing el himno nacional and i was just like in tears like oh god i never thought this would happen and one of the i think one of the things that like my dad also like raised us on for sure is like we always watch soccer with him and when i was a kid i thought it was so boring and i don't know if you remember um the tvs that they used to have in like the 80s and the early 90s and it was like the soccer games were all like blurry and like pixelated and you could just hear like like, (sighs) the whole time um and it was horrible but now i love watching peruvian soccer all the time and um it was magical i saw i saw actually peru play a friendly match in la in the end of 2019 i think it was and that was like the best experience that was the best day of my life i think it was it was so amazing i was just surrounded by peruvians no one questioned us being there peru won against brazil and it was like a friendly match but i was like oh my god it was amazing we could talk about soccer all day (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah I mean anytime Peru beats Brazil it's it's definitely a, a huge huge celebration um but yeah I think it's it's magical is the right world the way the right word which you used to describe it because so many of our parents remember the 70s and the glory days mm, right yeah. in Peru uh, and so it's nice that we have those memories now with like the World Cup that happened you know and like qualifying to go. I think one of my regrets is not, perhaps figuring out a way to get myself to Russia
1: <laughs> to be <Yes>. there. <laughs> I was also, I was like, how can I make this happen? How can I get there? Yeah. Like, what do I need to sell to get
0: there? <laughs> um, so as we wrap up, what is, um, what, what message do you have for Peruvians in Peru? And what message do you have for Peruvians here in the U.S.?
1: Um, I just think that, We have such a rich culture and especially we have such a rich, beautiful culture. And especially for those of us that live in the U.S. or live in other places where there just isn't that much representation theres not there isn't, there aren't that many Peruvians for us to live to. I think having that connection is so important and seeing people who are like you or who are your culture um, doing well, I think is so, so important. And yeah, just for anyone who is like... Peruvian, Peruvian American, who like struggles with their identity, just know like you are completely loved, you completely belong, and there's always space for you. That's the thing that I would say. That's beautiful. Um,
0: now, if our audience wants to stay in touch with you um, regarding coaching or uh, hypnotherapy or anything, um, how can they stay
1: in touch with you? Yes, yeah, so you can check out my Instagram. It's at Grow With Julieta. And Julieta spelled G I U L I E T T
0: A. All right, and I'll sure to link up a link up your Instagram username on the description of the episode. Julieta, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. I really, I really appreciate you sharing your story with us, and I think that I hope our audience learned a lot and found a sense of belonging in this conversation because. Whether you're half Peruvian, a quarter Peruvian, as long as you identify with being Peruvian and you care to learn about the culture and keep the culture, I think, you know,
1: nobody can say otherwise. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun. And I'm just so grateful that you have this platform where we can learn about each other and kind of hear stories similar to ours.
0: Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Peruvians of USA. I look forward to connecting with you there. And remember, el mejor amigo de un peruano es otro peruano. Chao.